Safety Chick Rules, the podcast with incredible stories of survivors, experts, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things, all with the mission to fight the bad guys. This isn't your ordinary true crime podcast. This one gives you the tools to live a safe and empowered life, fighting crime one tip at a time. One out of every six American women has been the victim of an attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. Every 68 seconds, another American is sexually assaulted. I personally know many women who have been raped or sexually assaulted who never reported it. In fact, I bet more women do not report being raped than do. There are many, many reasons why a woman does not report a rape or sexual assault. And we're going to get into that a little later in this podcast. But first, I want to introduce you to one of my oldest and dearest friends, Adele Hicks. She's here today to share her story of being raped at the age of 13. She and I raised our kids together back in San Francisco. We often sit out on my deck having a cocktail or two or five and contemplate life. A couple weeks ago, we were talking about her rape and the lasting effects it has had on her life. And as she was speaking, I realized this was something that she needed to share with my audience. I felt that there are thousands of you out there that would benefit from hearing her story. For all of you that have been a victim of rape or sexual assault, this show is for you. Hopefully, this will bring you wisdom, a sense of peace, and a sense of empowerment. Well... Welcome. I am so honored, seriously, and appreciative for you coming into studio today. You've been a lifelong friend, and um, I just really think what you have to say is really going to resonate with our listeners and viewers, and it's really important that women like you um, share your story. So I really thank you for being here, and I promise you I will get you vodka after this. (laughs) Thank you, Kathleen. Certainly, Adele. So we needed. So Adele. Yes. Let, talk about obviously you do not sound like you're from here. No. You sound like that Geico lizard person. Yes, I do. In fact, he's my cousin. Really? Yes. B- b- bonded. He we might be a little bonded. taller. He might but. be. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm actually was born and raised in in the outskirts of London in a town called Northampton. Um, born in 1962. And so what was that town like? Um, the town was some place I couldn't wait to get out of. Um, uh, my father was um, important. Uh, my mother was more important <laughs> okay. um, to herself. And we, David, my, my brother and I were raised in a difficult house where my father was gone and we were left with... Um, a mother that didn't really nurture us, mm-hmm. um, which is potentially why my situation happened. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you want me to go into the story? Yeah. Well, let me. T- so, 
you know, how big was the town? It was it one of those, like, you know, when I picture London or, you know, the outskirts of London in the movies and everything, it's all very quaint and everyone drives those little teeny tiny cars and everybody knows each other and goes to the baker and the butcher. Was it like that? Kind of. Um, really? We had a city centre, strange town, because it was on the outskirts of London. We got a lot of the London overspill, is what we called it, which meant that people that couldn't afford to live in London but worked in London could live in Northampton and still get to the city. So there was that crowd. And then there was the country crowd where there were horses and cute villages with um, thatched roof pubs. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I grew up, your milk was delivered on your doorstep. Um, And uh, police rode on horseback because we were on the outskirts of this town. And it was very, very pretty. Very, very pretty. Um, as the town grew um, from the overspill of London, not so pretty. It's not some place I would have wanted to raise my children mm-hmm. now. But at the time, it was it, it, it was a good place to raise kids. So, what were the you know what were the schools like? I mean, did everybody know everybody? Were the schools small or yeah, class I, size? And you know, it's interesting you say that. I I uh, just joined my high school. Uh, Facebook group and we are all so connected could I tell you how big that school was no I really don't know and I don't think in England back in the 70s we really knew how many kids were in our class Mm -hmm. Um, I lost my way so I will tell you that at 13 my life changed dramatically and I can tell you also I didn't really go back to school. Okay. I missed a lot of school. Okay, so take me back to the day. I will. I'll take you back to the previous day. Okay. Because that's probably pinnacle in my story. And I want to tell this story because there are so many women in our age group that are keeping this secret. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's no proof now. There was no, there's no internet that, yeah. in our time. So the day before I had babysat for my parents' best friends, and I had earned a little bit of money. On the Friday night, I went to a youth club that my mother dropped me off at. And she specifically told me not to take the money from that I had made the night before babysitting. And I did. And the youth club, Kathleen, we did all know each other, so it, but it was not supervised. So we're talking 1975, a youth club about four miles from my house, across from a, an old race course. It used to be horses, was no longer used. And we pretty much knew everybody in there, but we were not supervised. It was an under 18 with a DJ, mm-hmm. but it was not supervised. And there was a guy there, just so happened, that um, I had separated from my friends. He grabbed my handbag and he dragged me outside he took me over the road to the race course without knowing that there was money inside that handbag i knew he violently raped me and then he gave the handbag back to me how did you did you know him had you ever seen him before i knew him by name i still know him by name um he was a known in town to be trouble. And why he targeted me that night, I will never know. 
I think if it hadn't been me, it would have been someone else. How did he get you away from your friends? I was away from my friends. I had just stepped away, came, gone to the bathroom, came out. He grabbed my handbag. The sick part of the whole thing is that money was still in my handbag. He didn't ever look in the handbag. It was all about the violence of, and the sex. Of the rape. Yes. He was a predator. Yes. How old was he? Um, I believe he was just under the cutoff. So he would have been 17 years old. And I was 13. Wow. Way too wide of an age gap for well, Of course. Children. But that's, I mean, that's what predators do. Yeah. Um, you know, they target the, the young and the, the innocent. Yeah. Um, so tell me about those moments. What do you remember? Because I, you know, as we, as we all know, when you're in that life threat, it's surreal. Like time stops, right? It's, you remember everything becomes like magnified and it's just so interesting. So, you know, take me back to that moment. I can remember him taking me outside. I can remember what the street looked like. I can remember what the bush he pushed me into looked like. I can feel him today. I can... I remember what I was wearing. I remember just thinking to myself, do not let your mother down, come back with the money that I'd promised from the babysitting oh my God. that I had promised not to take with me that I knew was in that handbag. And uh, all I thought was, get the handbag back. Get that handbag back, whatever it took. Oh, my God. What what were you wearing? I was wearing... Because you know how they... That's what everybody asked the rape victim. Well, I was what wearing... What were you a, wearing? I was wearing a white skirt and a pretty top. Can't tell you the, the colour of the top, but I can tell you that after the rape... I ran back in with my handbag and the money, went straight to the bathroom, screaming. Nobody paid any attention to me. And I remember scrubbing grass stains and blood stains out of my white skirt. Oh, God, Adele. Scrubbing it and not being able to get it out. Did did uh, when did he just get up and run away, or did he go back into the party, or did went you ever in- see... Did you ever see him again? I never saw him again. I know his name. Um, I don't know what's happened to him. Um, But it changed the directory of my life completely. So every decision I made thereafter, Kathleen, was different than if that event hadn't happened. Every decision. In what way? I became a wild child. And I did that because in my mind, I needed to reclaim some sort of power. And the power at 13 that had, that had happened to me was sexually driven, right? So I became wild in my sexual antics, trying to get power back from guys. Mm-hmm. I dropped out of school. I didn't know. Technically, that's an Americanism. I didn't actually drop out of school. I just didn't go, and I just was misbehaving all over the place. And I had a mother that I had a father that travelled, and a mother that was doing other things, um, who wasn't paying attention to uh, me at all. And I was I was wild. Um, and I think that I've made what just- ages? Like okay, so that happened at thirteen. Yes. So how many? You know, let, let's talk, you know, 14, 15, this behavior Wild. continued. Wild. So 
I would go to school in my school uniform, change of clothes, go find somebody dangerous to mess with. I would, um, I, I just couldn't focus on school. Nobody was, I showed up at home when I was supposed to. And I think let's move it forward just a little bit. And this is probably where I say that changed the course of my life. I, I did leave school at 16. I was not in... I, I, and, and did your parents know they, this? They did, were fine. They were fine. They were fine with you leaving school at, at 16. 16. Yeah. Why? We, we just lived in a house where a mother didn't really, wasn't very nurturing and a father was nurturing but was traveling the world. So it was a very strange upbringing. I left school at 16 and I took a job for six months and immediately went thereafter to London. I wow, found at 16 years old, 17. You, 17 years old, you left that little village and I went and to, moved London. to London. And I literally have ran from that town my entire life. And I will tell you that's part of the decision. Uh, that's how scarred I was. So what, at, at 17, I move into London. At 19, I get a great job that I love traveling by bus and train and <laughs> to get to it. And they offered me a job in America, which meant I could get even further away from this small town. And I moved to America in 1984. How old were you? I was uh, 21 years old. Wow. And I sometimes think, you know, that if, if that event hadn't happened, would I, would I have made different decisions? Absolutely. But I was on the run. I was wild and on the run. So you're just going back to, you know, your, your parents and, mm. you know, and your brother. I mean, did anyone notice that you had changed? Probably the most uh, difficult part of this story for me to tell is that story because um, it was 1975, and rape was not acceptable when your father had won the award, Queen's Award for Technology. And, 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 and I knew I had to keep it secret, and I knew what was happening to me, um, going off the rails. Later, I approached my mother, and I was probably 35, when I said to my mother... Um, Mom, did you know what happened to me at 13? Nothing happened to you at 13. I said, I was raped at 13. And I can tell you the day, the time, where it was, what I was wearing, and who it was. And she said, it didn't happen. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Moving forward, Kathleen, I have a wonderful brother and sister-in-law in Scotland, and... Um, I was living in California at the time, and I decided to go visit them without my husband at the time and the children. And I went, and the most bizarre thing happened to me. They took me out to a pub in Scotland, and David asked the question, what happened to you at 13? All those years later. And I was floored that he noticed but my mother and father didn't. And Dorothy, my sister-in-law, said, he's been dying to ask you this from the day I met him. And I said, 
I was raped. And he said, do you know him? And I said, yes. He asked what his name was. I told him and he said, I'll kill him. Went, well, good luck, I'm finding him. He's probably dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> Somebody probably got to him before you did. <laughs> After that, if that isn't crazy enough, and I don't believe I am the only 60-year-old woman telling this story. Absolutely. I am not. The world has come so forward on this. But we're still, the 60-year-olds who are raped are still stuck in time a little bit, which is why I'm doing this podcast. Mm -hmm. So my brother decides um, that he's going to confront my mother. And so they go out for dinner in London, and Dorothy's with him. I don't, I think, I think my father may have been, or he may have passed, but definitely it was David, Dorothy, and my mother. And David asked my mother... What happened to Adele at 13? Now, I had already told him. And she said, nothing. And he said, I'm going to ask you one more time, and I'm going to ask you for the truth. What happened to your daughter at 13? And she looked at him square in the face and said, nothing happened to her. What? Why? In your gut... Why would your mother be in such denial? I think it was the time, the 70s. We weren't talking about it. It was taboo. It was horrifying. Nobody was talking about it. And I think my father winning the Queen's Award for Technology in that world, she's definitely not going to admit to this, even within the family. And um, I will tell you, David walked away with Dorothy, grabbed her, walked away and changed everything. Um, I think it was the times, Kathleen. I just think it was, and that's why I wanted to do this podcast for the, the older community that suffered through this that didn't have a voice. Right. And we didn't. Absolutely. And even when we spoke up, you were the victim. You were the, you know, the, you, what did you wear? What did you do? What did, what you, did you do you, wrong? You were blamed. Or this you is get. the oldest, you know, tale as old as time. Yep. You know. Or you get. Yeah. What I got didn't happen. Right. Yet I can tell you every moment, so can David, so can Dorothy. And all he wanted to do that day, that dinner in London, all he wanted, all he needed f for himself and for me was for her to just acknowledge. Right. And she didn't. You know, that's it. And you're absolutely right. That generation, you know, I know there's a lot of good women, women out there, but, um, you know, women in the, you know, born in the 29, 30s, I mean, that's a, they, they, they're a callous bunch. They're, they're a callous <laughs> bunch. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's awful. But, um, you know, we've, we've come so far I want to say, I mean, yes, the Me Too movement has helped immensely, um, you know, where we are now with sexual assault on campus. I mean, raising awareness. I, I do strongly believe that um, women are in a much better place to um, go for help and report rape. Um, but still, as we all know, I mean, look at what just happened with Cuomo and the yeah. women that came forward. With, I mean, you're always... You're always going to be scrutinized, and it is—it just is what it is. So, you know what a uh, 
what you know, and I, I have obviously heard this story before, but every time I hear it, it just it just gets me to my core because we can all go back and makes me want to cry to being 13 years old. You know, golly, we have our whole life ahead of us. And that one violent, predatory act can change, as you said, the trajectory of a person's entire life. Every decision. But with that, there also is that, and I always say this on the show, that fight within everybody. Yes. That has you get back on course. Right? Yeah. Perhaps even more important than that, I would like to think I have a strong sixth sense from that event that was created by that event. Meaning that, Kathleen, if someone's walking up behind me, I can feel them before I even know they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, and in raising my daughters, uh, it, it helped with just intuitively knowing what was going on. So I think it awoke something in me, taking it to a positive, that I may not, that may have been still asleep right. today. Right. Well, it's giving you <laughs> street smarts the hard way, unfortunately. Yes. Um, but that's the thing. When, when, when tragedy or difficult things happen in a person's life, I mean, look, no one goes through this life unscathed. No, they don't. You, you show me one per- you know. I want, I want a name. Yeah. <laughs> whoever that they're, is. They're not out there. <laughs> whoever that is, they're not drinking vodka with they're, us. That's all not. I can say. <laughs> you're not part of our group because you're fake. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's what we do with it. What do we do with these life yeah. lessons? And so if you had, um, you know, where you are today, you're married to a wonderful guy, yep. you have a great life, your yep. daughters are adorable. Yep. They're grown-ass women now. They are. We were five when we had our That's kids. right. I was three. Yeah. You were five. I was five. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for our listeners and viewers out yes. there, what is the piece of advice for somebody out there that is you, that is struggling, that is, you know, what would you, the words of advice you would give them? I would say, if you have been carrying this, Find someone to talk to. And it may not be your inner circle. It may not be... It could be a friend that you've just made. It could be a family member. It may be somebody you've known for 20... Don't carry this. Because um, that is the most unhealthy, toxic thing you could do, is carry this and not speak your truth. Exactly. And... Going back to the to, to, to my girls, and I'm going to tell this story for those women that are out there that are in their 60s, that were raped in the 70s, that had no voice. We did, we did have a voice. We, 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 we raised our children a little differently. We were a little bit more cautious. We watched them a little bit closer. We talked to them about things that weren't spoken to us. So pat yourself on the back, women. You're... You're awesome. If you haven't told, tell your story. Our story might be old, but it's new again. And it's important, really important. We didn't have the Me Too movement backing us. We had nothing backing us. Right. So speak up. Right. And, and again, it is, 
empowering and freeing. And, 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 you know, the, the other side of it is, is, you know, we all, we all are individuals. And so I always say personal safety or temperament is personal. It's what makes you feel comfortable. So if you, you know, there's, there's, there's also, if, if you don't feel comfortable speaking out, if you do, you know, want to keep that, maybe if you speak up, it, it relives it again. I don't know, but, but you do have to kind of check yourself yes. and see if it is a, I always do the check of light or heavy, yep. light or heavy. Yep. Talking to somebody about it, does that make you feel light or heavy? Yeah. And and there's no right or wrong reason no, to isn't. any of this because we're all human. We are all human. So what I want to do is, um, and awesome. Thank you me. did great. You did even better than when you're drinking vodka. <laughs> anyway, so what I want to do for the second part of this show, because I think, again, our listeners and viewers, you know, learn so much from you, but is to uh, take it to... Um, having a victim's advocate on the amazing Rachel Frost, um, who is a um, master investigator, decades in law enforcement, victim's rights advocate, has worked tires tirelessly with rape victims and really has created programs for victims to help them better. So after this little short break, we're going to bring on Rachel. To shed some light from a victim's advocate's point of view, I want to bring on someone with decades of experience working in the sexual assault world, retired master investigator Rachel Frost. Rachel is a 20-year law enforcement veteran specializing in intimate partner-related violence cases, specifically physical and emotional abuse, stalking, strangulation, restraining orders, sexual abuse, and child abuse. A nationally recognized trainer, she has instructed thousands of civilians, military, corporate, and government personnel across the U.S. in intimate partner violence. She's a member of the cadre of sexual assault experts for End Violence Against Women International. Rachel is the CEO of Frost ICED, Investigation, Consultation, Education, and Development, a full-service violence response and recognition firm. Her firm provides executive management for advanced investigation and information courses through the Action Academy. She's also developed the 24-7 Trauma and Abuse Survivor Fitness and Engagement app called Survivor of the Fittest. I love that name. Rachel, welcome. I thought you'd be the perfect person for us today to talk about, obviously, rape, rape, um, survivors, um, victims advocacy, and what women can do um, if they have been raped. So welcome and thank you for being here. So obviously Adele's story, as amazing and incredible as it is, um, you've heard that story how many times in your career? Many times, unfortunately, we don't hear it as often as we'd like, obviously from people who've been carrying it around for as long as Adele's had. Right. Um, but it was very, very emotional to hear it, I think, for anybody that listens. Right. So, you know, why is it in all your years of, of working in this industry, you know, the, the obvious back in the 70s, 80s, you know, we've 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 come a long way, baby. The Virginia Slim uh, commercial. Right. But we have. But why is it do you feel um that women still are so hesitant about reporting rape? Well, I think it's, I mean, I think, you know, this is a great point to talk about not just women, but men, 
um, people who are of the LGBTQ community, you know, and so on, um, they are afraid so many times they're not going to be believed. And how many times have we seen that to be true? Right. Uh, where they're not believed. They're scared. They're frightened. Um, a lot of times they feel, I mean, I can tell you from my career, I took one, and I took, I, I investigated and knew of one stranger rape. And that's what we, you know, that's what we learn in media and that's what we learn everywhere else, right? That we have the stranger rape, the person that's going to jump out of the bushes and grab you and drag you in versus the person you kind of know, the person you've met before, the person that's in your community, the person you might be dating, even a spouse. Um, so a lot of times victims carry an excessive amount of guilt along with the circumstance that happened, even though it's absolutely not their fault. They are, they go over and over the incident and think, did I do something? Did something occur? Was this, I mean, for, from Adele's story, you know, she didn't, she brought the money with her that her mom told her that she shouldn't bring with her. So she felt a certain sense of guilt, if you will, for having that. And I have to get the money back. I have to get the money back. If I had not brought that with me, you know, et cetera. This, these, in, in hindsight now at 60 years old, you know, that doesn't seem like such a big deal, but at 13 years old, that can be a very big deal and, and very uh, large issue. Um, and people have, you know, wars with inside themselves about, um, you know, how, how should I have reacted? Um, whereas all of these things are normal reactions to abnormal situations. No one should ever be put in a situation where they have to worry about, was that sexual assault, was that rape in any way my fault? It wasn't, of course, it's the perpetrator's fault. Um, but this is how we're made to feel by wonderful you know, perpetrators and sociopaths. So in all your years of experience, and you were with Re Riverside County in, in Los Angeles, right? Who were you with, the organization? Uh, Riverside County Sheriff, just east of Los Angeles. It's the, the big county to the, to the right, if you're looking at the Yes, I believe it's the meth capital of the world, right? <laughs> it, it definitely was. <laughs> Hopefully we've cleaned up some, okay. a little bit since then, but I can guarantee you. All right. It's still, I, I live in a great place. So. It's pretty. It's pretty. It's on the way to Palm Springs. Um, so in all your years of, of working with raped, you know, sexual assault victims, um, what would you say, what should a woman, man, LGBTQ victim do if they have been raped from a law enforcement well, perspective? Okay, well, first, of course, we want them to be safe. Safety is, is first and number one. Um, as law enforcement, we're learning as time goes by, and, and we should know this already, obviously, but it depends on the size of your jurisdiction and how um, you know, educated everybody is within it in terms of victimology and, and investigation, et cetera. But we do best handling, whether it's intimate partner violence or sexual violence, human trafficking, child abuse, we do best when we do it in a team environment, a multidisciplinary environment, much like threat assessment, as you right. guys know, because that's where <laughs> that's where we know each other from. The Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. ATAP. Exactly. ATAP. ATAP. <laughs> exactly. Go ATAP. Anyway, go ahead, Rachel. Go ATAP. <laughs> um, but but absolutely, I mean, it, it really is handled best when it's handled in a group. So when you've got investigators, you've got um, forensic nurses, obviously, you have a medical on your side. You have the people who are responding um, in an emergent situation out on scene at your side. 
your patrol folks, your executive staff, your victim advocates, um, you know, and it can go on and on and on. Um, but in terms for the victim, number one, we want you to be safe. We want you to get to a safe place, be in a safe place. Um, and, and every victim's going to be different. I can't tell you this is what you must do because everyone's going to want to do things in a different manner. Um, but what we would love, like the, the perfect scenario, if you're in law enforcement, um, obviously we want to preserve as much evidence as possible. So your clothes, um, if you can, you can save your clothes. If you can call us right away, that would be great. You may not always be ready to call us right away. Um, but this is really important information. We're in a great time in terms of the availability for victims to go to an emergency room and to get a sexual assault exam done and not have to report to law enforcement yet. So this is an opportunity to collect the evidence, maintain the evidence, put the evidence in an evidence locker. Um, now, your, your emergency staff is going to be a mandated reporter. They do have to call the police department. But once the police department shows up or the sheriff's department shows up, the victim has the right to say, no, thank you. I don't want to talk to you right now. And then they're issued a report number and they're provided the report number and said, if you change your mind, please call us. And at that point, you have not only do you have forensic nurses available to collect all of your evidence and then it goes to law enforcement, it's put in their evidence room, but you get the opportunity to speak with a victim advocate, someone who can answer a lot of your questions who can kind of guide you through all of this. That's um, fantastic. And a lot of times, right, a lot of times people don't want to don't want to report or don't want to move forward because they're frightened and they don't know what to expect. So many times when people know what's going to happen, they know what's going to expect, they know what's coming down the pipe, they have the opportunity to say, I do want to report. Someone's going to sit here with me. This victim advocate's going to stay with me. This person seems cool. You know, we try to get victim advocates who are cool. You know, <laughs> That's a rep requisite. But you know, it's true. It's really, it's, it's really important. You want someone that you can relate to. I just have a sidebar on that. And, you know, I was, when I was kidnapped, you know, tied up, taken out of gunpoint, and then they, you know, I escaped unharmed. And then I was sitting in this, you know, interview room and they sent in a psychologist, police psychologist. It was a man. In his, he, he looked like a, I don't know, he had to be in his late 60s, paunch belly, smoking a pipe. He freaking looked like Sherlock Holmes. I don't even know what the hell it was. I'm like, I could not, I mean, I could not relate to that guy at all. And I just clammed up. So it is extremely important after trauma that you are put with trained individuals that are going to relate to whoever that victim is. You're absolutely right. That's vital in this process. Absolutely. And you know what? I think it is about, I mean, certainly at times it can be, it can be gender related. Yeah. And it's really important, I think, to ask the victim, would you feel with, um, what would you like, et cetera. Uh, but I, I mean, I've known male investigators who are phenomenal. They right. are phenomenal. My one buddy, uh, Freddie, I won't tell his last name just in case, but uh, my one buddy, Freddie, was, he was one of the best people in a room with a victim to get them to calm down in terms of, no, I don't want to say get them to calm down. I like that phrase. Well, like, yeah, but I, I know what you're saying. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's right. you know, safe, feeling safe, feeling safe, safe versus, exactly. yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. So he would get them to feel safe in order to be able to share because you're going to share very intimate things. I mean, even with Adele's story, you know, 
and Adele, I know you're, you're listening to it. Um, you didn't want to talk and, and, and you don't have to, obviously you didn't want to talk about the incident itself. You wanted right. to talk about what happened right before and then what happened right afterwards. But the right. incident itself is a very visceral, personal, traumatic, wound-opening, horrible thing in your life. Now, I mean, now imagine you have to tell it to the patrol officer who arrives on scene, mm. the uh, victim advocate, the forensic nurse, maybe the ER person, maybe a detective, and then you might have to tell your family if you haven't already told your family, and if you have an, a supportive or non-supportive family. I think that's why, where victim advocacy comes in. Really, it's really important because you need to have somebody in your corner. You need to have someone that says, you're not crazy the way you feel, the way you feel right now. You're feeling normally. You're having a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Right. Um, and, and then this is something I say all the time when we have um, intimate partner violence. I say, no one should ever make you feel less. You know, less than who you are, less than what you intend to be, um, you know, scared, less than safe, you know, no matter what it is. And these are those moments in our life where, you know, suddenly the foundation we thought we had built is gone. Uh, and now we need to have a community that helps pick them back up in order right. to, you know, put the responsibility where it belongs, which is on the perpetrator. Exactly. Now, you know, this is kind of a sidebar thing, but, you know, you read all the mm -hmm. time about all these rape kits that are not being processed. Where are we in that? And what states are the worst? What can we do to help this? It, it drives me insane when I read that in the papers. Well, a lot of times, you know, and I can tell you from, you know, past history, there just were, you know, policies and procedures in place where you didn't test every single rape kit. Um, a lot of times, you know who the suspect is. So, and, and let's, so let's go back to that for just a second. Um, and then I'll kind of answer your question because this is going to be a sidebar that doesn't necessarily answer your question. So I <laughs> okay. um, but if I'm telling you that I are sharing with you, telling you, <laughs> if I'm sharing with you that in, in my 20 years of working in law enforcement, I handled one stranger rape, that means I knew who the person was all the rest of the times. How many percentage of those people admitted to having sex with the other person, but it was a consent defense? Sure, it happened, but it was consensual. That changes everything. That doesn't always rely on a rape kit. Um, so I think our, our, you know, because now we're looking for DNA, we're looking for all these things. Um, at that point, the rape kit changes for me. I'm more interested in the photographs. I'm more interested in the conversation. I may want swabs of the neck or, or pictures of the bruises or something along those lines to prove the, um, what do I say, the version of events or to prove how the events occurred. And I don't need the presence of sperm. I don't need a lot of these other things that, that you know, if it's a stranger rape you're looking for, because you got to identify that guy or that girl or whoever, um, depending upon, you know, what the circumstances and who the victim is. But so some of those rape kits that aren't that haven't been tested, they're still there because they still fall under the law, but I don't need them tested. Um, so I think that's that's part of the conversation that we need to have is we need to be we need to be booking these things in in a different way. Um, and right. It's we'll, more... it, we'll do a forensic exam. Right? We do them on everybody. Um, but if a lot of my cases are consent defense, this is why it's so important for detectives to know how to investigate consent defense investigation cases. Um, it's not just a, 
you can't go in there and say, well, it's he said, she said, there's nothing I can do about it. Rachel, what kind of resources are out there? What are the ones that you really like um, for women, anybody that is a, you know, that is, that is suffering, that is, you know, a victim of everything that we've talked about today? What are some good resources out there that you like? Well, of course, I think, you know, we can always have more. Um, and I love it when everything's co-located. So for example, I really enjoy family justice centers. I'm a, a big advocate, not just because I work with their training institute on strangulation prevention and Alliance for Hope, but I love the fact that family justice centers are spreading across the United States and the world right now so that we have places where you've got a district attorney, you've got investigators, you've got advocates who don't have to necessarily um, immediately report, but they can just do intakes with victims and find out what they need. Do you just need a gas card? Do you need some clothes? Do you need some food, you know? Or do you want to report? Can we get a nurse here to help you out? Um, so I'm a big fan, obviously, of Family Justice Centers. There's some, it depends on what you need, but there's some great resources out there. Um, I love the, uh, the opportunities. And, and if you go online, um, we, there's some technology specialists out there. Um, who do great jobs. And, you know, I have a, a resource website I can give for all your listeners. Afterwards. I was, I was um, just about to say to. that. Yeah. I was just about to say that. So, um, you know, on my website, safetychick.com, I have the podcast page. And when your episode comes up, we will list all of the resources that you're talking about and we will link to your website. Great. So all of our listeners and viewers will have it. I, I so appreciate you coming on today. Um, wealth of knowledge, wealth of knowledge, um, and just really wish you success. I'm going to have you back because what we didn't talk about is the app, but we're out of time. So I'm going to bring you back in studio because I know where you are. I know you're very close, Rachel. So I'm going to get you in. Well, and me, you and Adele, we're all having vodka. We're all having vodka. Anyway, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. If you or someone you know has been the victim of a sexual assault or rape, please reach out and get help. Contact the 24-7 National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. That's 1-800-656-4673. So we're going to end up with thanking Adele. And I'm going to cry because without your bravery coming forward and telling this really private story, um, I think you've helped a lot of women today. Thank you. Kathleen. And you've really earned that vodka. Thank you, Kathleen. Love you. I love you too. All right. So remember, oh, I'm such a sap. Um, you can find me at safetychick.com, Instagram at the safety chick. Twitter at the safety chick, Facebook, Kathleen Gallagher, the safety chick. If you have any questions, if you need help, if, um, you know, you have ideas for shows, please do not hesitate to reach out until next time.